Malachi 1, 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name at a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. How are we doing this morning? I love in the announcements that we got the women's event coming up, which is gonna be awesome. But I just love the difference between men's ministry and women's ministry, just how radically different they are. Because really that event came because there's some volunteers, they got together and say, hey, what would women like and what would they wanna do and where are the things that are gonna attract people? And one of the things they're gonna do that women's night is make floral floral arrangements. Like they're gonna take flowers and put them together and figure out the science behind that and how to make it look good. And next men's ministry meeting we have, I'm gonna throw that out as an idea of say, hey, why don't we do a men's night where floral arrangements, like that's the thing that we all, um, that's, I just love it. I love that it's that different and uh, it's not cliche. It's just, just the truth. So that has nothing to do with the message. I just, I giggled when that announcement happened. And uh, side note, women, you should sign up. You should come be a part. And guys, we're gonna do flowers together someday. You just wait, it's coming. Uh, let's pray and we'll dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, the privilege to come into your house. Uh, God, we, we thank you for the power of your word. And so our prayer is that you would speak in a powerful, powerful way. You speak, Lord, get me out of the way through the power of your Holy Spirit that each and every one of us would walk away with the truth of the scripture, wrestle with it in our own lives and walk away different. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Uh, one of the most watched TED Talks of all time is by a guy named Simon Sinek. Uh, his TED Talk was called Start With Why. He then wrote a book called Start With Why. It's an amazing TED Talk. Actually, my first week here at Cherry Hills, I had the entire staff watch it uh, because it's a book that really 
answers and questions a lot of things that are important of, of why are we doing what we do? And the main thing that he talks about in that talk and also in the book is this, he says, most people can tell you what they do, but a better motivator is why they should do it. And so in life, you know, there's a lot of different places and things that, that you know what you do, but do you really understand why you're doing it? And so in this TED Talk, also in the book, he tells two different stories. Uh, the first story he tells is by a guy, about a guy named Langley. Now Langley's probably a guy that you have not heard of, but Samuel Pierpont Langley in 1898 was trying to create manned flight. He had had some success with some different engines. Uh, he had incredible education. He had advanced degrees in mathematics and physics and astronomy. Uh, he received government grants. So $70,000 worth of government grants, that'd be worth a couple million today's dollars. Uh, $50,000 came from the Secretary of Defense, uh, Department of Defense. 20,000 came from the Smithsonian. So incredibly well-funded, incredibly well-educated, incredibly connected. So he had lots of people, the smartest minds in the world were helping him. And then he gave up his pursuit of piloted flight after, and this was only his second failed attempt on December 8th, 1903. Now, why would he give up on that date when he had only crashed twice, two times? It's because not long after that date, a very famous thing happened. The Wright brothers' first flight was December 17th, 1903. And as soon as the Wright brothers successfully did it, Langley quit. Now, here's what's interesting about the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers never finished high school. They had no formal education or training that had anything to do with flying. They were bicycle salesmen, but they fell in love with the idea of piloted flight. They were self-taught, they were self-funded, they were self-researched. And now if you were to compare Langley to the Wright brothers, you would say that the Wright brothers had no business finding the success that they found. And yet they succeeded where Langley did not. Here's one huge difference between the Wright brothers and Langley. The Wright brothers leading up to their first flight crashed over a thousand times. Let me say that again, over a thousand times they crashed flying. They, they wouldn't stop. They wouldn't just say, hey, we got there, we achieved it, we were the first. No, they would spend the rest of their lives dedicated to improving and improving and improving manned piloted flight. They would go on from this flight, which was a few hundred feet, to eventually be able to, to fly for miles. And neither of the Wright brothers ever got married. One of their biographers asked them, Hey, why did you never get married? And here was their answer. They said, there's only enough love in our life for one thing and for us, that's flying. They were passionate about flying. Simon Sinek would say that the reason Langley failed is because he didn't understand his why. He was focused on the what. He wanted to be the first to fly. And then when he wasn't the first, he gave up, he quit. The Wright brothers, on the other hand, they were doing it because they loved the idea of flying. They saw what was possible. They saw the potential and they pursued it with everything that they had. Now in life, oftentimes we see people that when they mix up their what and their why, it has disastrous results. Uh, just think for a second about relationships. 
In relationships, people get married because of their why. They get married because they love someone. They want to be with someone. But eventually, if that relationship loses its why and becomes just the what, and what I'm supposed to do, what this is supposed to look at, look like, that the love starts to fade and the relationship deteriorates. It happens all the time with occupations. That you see people that say, I'm going into this profession because I'm passionate about it, because I love it. But eventually it can become a job when you focus on the what and not the why. You see it all the time with pastors. You see pastors that somewhere in their career, uh, they've been doing church, doing church, and then all of a sudden they just stop and they, they quit. It happened a whole bunch in the last few years with COVID. The pastors just got burnt out. What can lead to burnout when we lose our why? And so it's an important question or just a concept to think to yourself of your what and your why. It's easy to lose our why when we focus on the what. And the same is true inside the church. Same is true for you, same is true for me. Every single Sunday, we can get so focused on the what of church that we miss the why of church, that I go to church because I'm supposed to, and I sing songs because I'm supposed to, and I raise my hands because maybe I'm supposed to, or I don't raise my hands because I think I'm supposed to. There's all these things that, well, this is what you do, what you're supposed to do as part of being at church. But the real question, the most important question is why are you here? Why is God calling us to study his word? Why is God calling us to worship? And why do I do those things? If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Malachi. We're in the last book of the Old Testament. So if you've never been there before, turn to Matthew and then just go backwards a couple pages. We're in Malachi chapter one. We're gonna look today at verses six through 14. Last week, Bronson did an excellent job of kicking off the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament and it's an interesting book because after this book, there's then what we call the 400 years of silence. There's no written book. There's no recording that we have where God talks to his creation. So there's this 400 year gap and then you have the New Testament. But the problems that we see happening in the book of Malachi are very similar to the problems that I would say exist inside the church today. That Malachi is written after the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. So it's a really brief history of the nation of Israel. The Old Testament is predominantly about their story, the nation of Israel. And so you have this cycle that happens over and over and over in the Old Testament where they are in a relationship with God and then they fall away from that relationship. They get distracted by worldly things. By not focusing on God, it ultimately leads to disastrous results. They end up having really bad things happen to them as a nation. They then repent. They say, God, we're sorry, please forgive us. And then God goes back into a relationship with them and starts to fix certain things only to have them fall back out of relationship with God. So that happens over and over and over again. After David, King David, then you have uh, Solomon, then you have the nation of Israel gets divided into the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And then really they all kind of get blown up, but slowly over time, they all turn away from God, invading nations, take them over. Then you have the book of Nehemiah and Ezra where uh, they are going back to the nation of Israel. They rebuild the wall, they rebuild the temple. And that's where we pick up in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter one, we're gonna start in verse six. It says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? So two really important words in this first section is the word honor 
and the word fear. In Hebrew, this word honor is kavat. It's a word that we don't really quite have the exact same definition or understanding of because we just live in a different culture. So in biblical times, the economy was built around honor and shame. In one way, the currency exchange in a community was honor and shame. And so you would do things in your community that they would say, we honor those things, which means they lift those things up, they value those things. Or if you do things that they would say are bad things, they would shame those things. So the more honor someone had, the more social standing somebody had. So honor is really this idea of value and respect. Interesting in the Old Testament, it never tells you to love your parents. Doesn't doesn't say it in the Old Testament. It does tell you to honor your parents, to to respect them, to to give them the honor that they deserve. And then this word fear, uh, there's a few different words in Hebrew for fear. This one is the word marah. And that word really is this idea of awe, except it's, it's a deeper feeling of it. So to fear someone is to hold them in awe. Uh, in reverence, in worship, in high regard. So God is saying, hey, look, a father receives honor from the son. A servant receives fear from the master. You don't give me either. Now, what's interesting about this passage we're looking at is it's specifically written to the priests. So this wasn't even the whole nation of Israel. This is the people that are supposed to be the holiest people of Israel. And he's saying, you're not honoring me and you are not fearing me. He says, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Now, if you are a parent, you recognize that that's what happens. And we see it throughout Malachi over and over again. God says, hey, you're, you're doing this wrong. And then immediately they start making excuses. What? Me? No. In, in our house, we talk a lot about the word but. That when you receive instruction, when you receive some type of, a, hey, you're not supposed to do that. What my li- kids like to do, and I'm sure your kids never do this, but they respond with, but. And so we say, hey, you're not allowed to say that word. That means you are arguing with me over it. And so then they will, will say, okay, I won't say, but. Well, and they always want to point the blame somewhere else. It's not my fault. It was my sister's fault. It was my brother's fault. It was his fault. It was her fault. Well, yeah, but my, my friends at school, they get to. My neighbors across the street, they are. It's this human condition that we naturally like to push blame off of ourselves. And that's exactly what the priests are doing. God is saying, you're not fearing me. You're not honoring me. Because of that, you are despising me. And they're like, what? No, no, not us, but. And it says, but you say, how have we despised your name? And then God gives the answer. Here's how, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying you wouldn't give those same offerings to a governor. Why? Because you care what they think. You wouldn't give that same offering to someone you love or respect or you want them to like you. And yet that's the same type of offering that you're giving to me. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. 
And now one of the things to unpack and understand is that this idea of what the sacrifice is supposed to be. So in the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again that the sacrifice that is supposed to be made is supposed to be without blemish. It's supposed to be perfect. Now this is foreshadowing what we see in the New Testament, that Jesus in the new covenant is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And what kind of a sacrifice is he? He's without blemish. He's perfect. He has no sin whatsoever. And so if we look throughout the Old Testament, just, just to pick one verse in Deuteronomy, you see this idea. So in Deuteronomy 15, 21, you also see the exact same concept in Leviticus 1, 3, 1, 10, 3, 1, 3, 6, 4, 2, uh, 4, 23. I mean, it's all through the Old Testament. You see this idea, but if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Now, why is that? Why is there such a big deal? It's because the Old Testament and the New Testament, really throughout all of scripture, it wants us to understand the weight of sin. And sin is not a warm, fuzzy topic that you like to talk about or like to hear about. And yet sin is a really important theological thing to understand. The importance of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus means nothing if we don't understand the weight of sin. That sin, when we do something wrong, there's two things that are the result of that. That, that we are separated away from God, that we have a, a holy God, a righteous God, and sin cannot have a relationship with righteousness. And so we're separated from God. But then also what we see over and over, it's the whole point of the sacrificial system is that sin requires a punishment, a death, a sacrifice. In Romans, it says the wages of sin, the punishment of sin is death. And so if, if that sacrifice is being made on my behalf, it can't be with blemish, it has to be perfect. You see, somewhere along the way, the priests stopped understanding the why of what they were doing. They started focusing on the what. Hey, we're making these sacrifices, but man, do, do we really wanna give the best? I mean, doesn't economically it make more sense to, to maybe take the sacrifices that are lame or blemished or messed up? We can't sell them for as much. They're not worth as much. And so let's, let's just sacrifice those instead, but they were missing the why. The why is, why are we doing this? We're doing this because God loves us and we're pursuing him. And we want that right standing relationship with him. And so we have to take this sin seriously. There's an interesting concept about that word worship. In our culture, we don't really like that word. We don't talk about that word much. People outside the church, if you ask them what they worship, they probably say they don't worship anything. But by definition, everybody worships something. Everybody's worshiping something. The question is, what are we worshiping? That what we love the most is those things which we tend to worship. That oftentimes in our culture, I'd say what most likely is the worship thing more than anything else is the worship of self. Of, hey, I love myself so much. I care so much about my success and my happiness and my pleasure that I am going to live a life that revolves around that. And so what are you worshiping? You are worshiping yourself. You might not articulate it that way, and yet that's the way you're living your life. That even good things can be worshiped, which is an unhealthy thing. Your, your spouse, that you should love your spouse, but if that love turns into worship of your spouse, where they become the ultimate thing, the most important thing, your spouse is not good enough 
to be worshiped. Eventually, they will let you down. And if you're worshiping your spouse, it will lead eventually to a disastrous situation. Same thing with kids. You should love your kids, but you should not worship your kids. When they become the ultimate thing in your life, that eventually your kids are going to do something that isn't what you want them to do. Eventually your kids will let you down and you should love them unconditionally, but if they're the worship, the center point of your life, then when they don't meet those expectations, you are going to lead to disastrous situation. No, instead, God throughout scripture over and over is saying that he alone is worthy of worship. And when we make anything else a God in our life that comes to that level, it leads to destruction in our life. We gotta understand the why of what we're doing and not just the what. All the time in church, there are things that we do just because we're supposed to do them. Like, like just take for example, when someone says, let's pray, whatever's said in your end, whether you're at church, whether you're at a sporting event, whether you're at a dinner table, when someone says, let's pray, what do you do? You close your eyes and you bow your head. Why? Well, because that's what you're supposed to do. You can be in the most secular place with the most heathenish population. And if you say, let's pray, everybody closes their eyes and bows their head. Why do they do it? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Do you, you want to know a secret? There's no scripture that says, when you pray, close your eyes and bow your heads. Not in there. That we see times in scripture where people, that because of the awe and reverence and fear they have of God, they close their eyes and they bow their head. And the reason they do it is because they're recognizing that God is greater than they are. And so they're humbling themselves in order to recognize it. But we also have places in scripture where people pray with their eyes open. That Jesus prays many times where his eyes are open and his, his head is looking up into the heavens. We have places in scripture where people are on their knees when they're praying. We have places in scripture where people lay down prostrate while they're praying. So there's all kinds of different positions. And yet culturally, we have kind of this norm. At our dinner table, we always close our eyes and bow our heads every time we pray. And I know when one of my kids has not closed their eyes and bowed their heads, because one of my other kids tells me as soon as the prayer is over. They say, hey, she didn't close your eyes and bow her heads. And I said, well, clearly you didn't either. <laughs> but, but why do they do it? Really, they do it because that's the social norm. It's the expectation. Our focus is on the what. When you pray, close your eyes, bow your head. That's what you do. But instead, the focus should be on the why. That, that when's the last time when you prayed? That the reason you closed your eyes and bowed your heads is because you were really in your heart communicating, God, you are worthy of my praise. God, you are greater than I am. And so I'm closing my eyes. I'm bowing my head in reverence and humility to recognize the fact that you are greater than me. I can tell you for me, most of the time, that's not the case. And so it's easy to look at Malachi and say, how could they do that? Why would they do that? And yet the truth is we tend to all fall into the same trap. Let's keep going. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. What's he saying? He's saying it'd be better if someone said, hey, we're not worshiping the right way, so we're just gonna shut down the temple. We're not gonna allow false worship, fake worship, hypocritical worship to come into the temple. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
Um, and in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Well, what's the message? He's saying, hey, I, I don't need your worship. God is saying, I will be Lord. My name will be great among the nations and I am not dependent upon your praise or your worship for that to be true. There's this tension that exists throughout all of scripture. I was in a conversation with, with Gary and Tricia this week about it. There's two things that are totally true inside of scripture. There's the transcendence of God and there's the imminence of God. The transcendence is the bigness of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God and the imminence is the intimacy, the relationship side of God. And what can easily happen is when one gets out of whack and becomes too strong at the expense of the other, it's unhealthy. So if my focus is entirely on the transcendence of God, of how big he is and how, how fearful I should be of him in all of him, in reverence of him, and I lose the imminence of God, then God is sovereign, but I have no relationship with him and he's distant. Now, on the other hand, if I focus so much on the imminence of God and lose the transcendence of God, then Jesus just becomes kind of my buddy and my friend. And man, we're, we're great and we're likable. But for that relationship to be right, both have to be true. That God is transcendent. God is holy. God does, I don't bring anything to the equation. Uh, it's not, well, God's great once I, no, 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 no. God is great independent of me. And so that is true. But simultaneously, God wants a relationship with me. And when those two things are focused, balanced rightly in my life, a beautiful thing happens. I have a relationship with God while also having him in the right place. Jesus echoes the same concept. The same idea of, hey, you're going through the actions, but your heart is wrong. Now look at what Jesus says in Matthew. He's talking to the Pharisees, the godliest people that existed at that time. They knew scripture backwards and forward. They lived the life right, and yet their hearts were wrong. Jesus says to them, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's saying, look, you're going through the motions, but you're missing it. Your heart is off. Your heart is off. Probably like most of you, uh, we've all at some level been aware of what's happened in Asbury. Uh, they're calling it the Asbury Revival. Uh, New York Times has picked up on it. Washington Post has picked up on it. When secular newspapers are picking up on it, it's a really big deal. If you're unaware of the Asbury Revival, uh, really what happened is on February 8th in the morning, uh, there was a chapel service at a school, Asbury in Kentucky. And it started at eight. And I've gone back and I've actually watched the whole service from beginning to end. And it, there was nothing that special about it. I mean, and the guy that even preached it would tell you there was nothing that, that special about it. I mean, it was kind of a decent sermon. Um, 
the music was kind of decent, not amazing. And then God kind of moved in this mysterious and incredible way uh, where all of a sudden what started in the morning, uh, kids didn't leave and, and they just continued to pray and they continued to repent of sin and stuff. And uh, a few hours later, the, the seminary president said, hey, there's worship going on in the chapel, you're welcome to join. And then what happened is from February 8th until the 24th, almost 400 hours straight, the worship service did not stop. Now for Gen Z, it's an interesting thing because you can tell how viral something is primarily by TikTok. Uh, and the hashtag Asbury Revival on TikTok has over hundred million views. Uh, there were 20,000 people a day, 20 to 25,000 people a day that were trying to go to the Asbury Revival. They did an amazing job, uh, the seminary president, where they had some really famous singers, some famous speakers show up and they say, hey, I'll lead worship. And they said, you know what, we're good. We're just gonna let students lead this and it's gonna be a student-led thing. And when you think about revival, uh, Dr. Tim Bauer is a, he's a seminary professor uh, who went and, and participated in Asbury Revival, uh, but he also did his PhD, his thesis for his PhD on revivals in general, specifically looking at the 1970 Asbury Revival, uh, but just studying all revivals. And here's something that he wrote uh, this, a couple of weeks ago about the Asbury Revival. He says, how do we know if what we think might be a revival is a genuine work of God? And that's the question, isn't it? It's a question everybody would wrestle with. How do I know that it's real or if it's just manifested by man? Because you can fake a lot of things. How do we know? And based off of his research, here's what he says. One unmistakable sign will be repentance. J. Edwin Orr, the great historian of revival once remarked that we really don't understand what we are praying for when we pray for revival. We think we are praying for ecstasy. And yes, joy is a byproduct of revival. But true revival doesn't begin in ecstasy, it begins with agony. It begins, it doesn't begin with laughter, but with tears. The Bible teaching this afternoon and several of the testimonies focused on repentance, not just feeling sorry for our sin, but with the Lord's help, seeking to remove it as far as we can from our lives. Hey, here's the interesting thing about revival. You look at that one specifically. And I think part of the reason that it wasn't a remarkable speaker and it wasn't remarkable music is God said, hey, I don't need your help. Revival happens when God shows up. And here's the thing, if you look at the history of revival, I can't manifest revival and you can't either. Revival is not a checkbox that I say, well, if you do this and if you do that and if you do this, then God shows up and then revival happens. Historically, that's not true. Revival happens where God decides revival is going to happen. And we can't manifest it ourselves, but revival by definition, we tend to think of revivals when, when a lot of people come to Christ and that is the long-term byproduct of revival, but that's not what to revive something means. Revival always starts with Christians, with Christians. Christians that have lost their why and have got focused on the what and are just going through the motions and God revives their heart to remind them of their, their love for God, their relationship with God, the transcendence of God equal to the eminence of God and that pursuit of holiness and repentance. Sometimes we think, well, I've already repented. I am a Christian, I don't have to repent anymore. But you know, the process of sanctification means that my whole life, for the rest of my life, I'm constantly dealing with the junk in my life. I'm a born sinner, I have sin nature, which means there's sin in my life I need to deal with that I'm not even aware of yet. 
And so I'm pursuing God in order to pursue his holiness. My son, when he was in first grade, we were driving to school and I, I took him to school by himself every day. And now I take all the kids to school every day, but, but he was in first grade, so it was just me and him. And it was about halfway through the school year. And we had this conversation where he was like, dad, how much longer do I have to go to school? And at the beginning of the school year, he was excited. He had the new backpack and the new shoes and, and man, woo. But then about halfway through the school year, he was tired and he, he was ready to be done. And he was like, hey, how, how much longer? I said, buddy, you got a ways to go. Uh, you're in first grade. So, I mean, like 20 years of this and maybe longer than that. And, and then he said this, I'll never forget. And this is really, so it, this is my, my son's personality in a nutshell. He goes, dad, I don't know that there's that much more for me to learn. He's in first grade. And then, and then he tried to convince me of this fact. He's like, I mean, I'm pretty good at reading and I, I, I can add and subtract. I mean, some of my friends can't do that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm good. What else is there for me to know? And he really truly believed that and probably still believes that. And you've met some people that believe that. But the truth about education is that it never stops. You never reach a plateau, you never get enough, you never know everything. And can I tell you, holiness is the same way? That you never achieve holiness, you never get there. It's a lifelong pursuit where I'm constantly trying to look inwardly and say, is my why right? Is it accurate? Am I just going through the motions or is my heart right with God? That's what Jesus preaches over and over and over again in the New Testament. He says, hey, you've heard this, but I'd say, and he talks about the heart. Are you doing it the right way? There's an amazing quote that I think really sums up just the whole core concept of it. They asked evangelist Gypsy Smith, hey, what's the secret to revival? How do we make revival happen? And here's his answer, go home, take a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, then pray, oh Lord, revive everything inside this circle. And that's where revival starts. I think everybody wants to see revival. I'd love to see, and it's, it's cool. There's college campuses all across the country that are doing similar worship services. And really the question is gonna be, hey, is there genuine repentance that is happening there? And I think we'd all say as Christians, man, I wanna see revival in our country and in our city and in, in the world. And if you wanna see revival, here's what we do. We start with us. You draw a circle around yourself and you humble yourself. And I humble myself and I say, God, let revival fall inside this circle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the words of Malachi. We thank you that it's easy for us to just say, well, that was a long time ago and it was a different group and it was a different place and it was a different time. And yet the heart of the message of Malachi applies every bit today. Lord, we thank you that Although Malachi is an oracle, it's this judgment. You start by saying, oh, Israel, I loved you. I have loved you and I do love you and I will always love you. And we, we stand on that truth today for each and every person in this room, each and every person here and listening online. Lord, we know that truth that you have loved us and you do love us and you will love us. And out of the abundance of your love, you want us to live lives that are experiencing the fullness of your glory. And in order for us to do that, we have to have hearts that are right with you. Lord, forgive us, forgive me for so often focusing on the what, the motions, 
and missing the why. Lord, help revive our hearts. Help us to draw a circle around ourselves and repent and pursue you and pursue holiness. That is our prayer. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray.